0: This is the Money Talks Podcast with Michael Campbell.
1: I'm glad you're with me. This election is about turning over more control to government, especially when it comes to the economy. And some people like the idea, others don't. But I got to say, given the track record, I don't know why anyone's comfortable with that idea. I'll talk about more, that, uh, more about that in a moment. Plus, Michael Levy is going to join me in a moment to talk about why raising taxes on the banks and other financial institutions is going to cost you money, not them. Plus, the trend letters Martin Straith says he's going to drop by to share his favorite stocks right now. Plus, Aussie on the secret real estate report that is upsetting, well, upsetting just about everyone who's seen it, plus a goofy and a shocking stat. But first... Over the past couple of weeks and watching our retreat from Afghanistan and watching as well the retreat of the Americans, which every expert, with the exception of paid partisans, has called a debacle, a calamity, a disgrace. Well, I've been thinking about those politicians calling for more government control and intervention in the economy. I find it astounding to see people not phased a bit by the profound incompetence on display and instead say, hey, give me more of it. I mean, we truly do get the government we deserve. Afghanistan, though, is just the latest illustration of government performance. Now, look, I appreciate that most Canadians approve of the government's handling of COVID-19, but I suspect that the dominant factor informing their opinion is, well, they got a check in the mail from the government. You're going to have to forgive me, but I can't get past that, as the Auditor General pointed out, Public Health Canada actually failed to update their pandemic preparation plan in 2019. I mean, that was their job, and they didn't do it. Well, I can't give that a passing grade, not with 28,000 people dying. The result, though, was that the government and the country was totally unprepared. There was no border policy. There was no vaccine plan. There was no cost-benefit analysis on the impact of locking down the economy. It was all fly by the seat of our pants which resulted in mistakes that cost lives, wasted billions of dollars. By the way, money that our children and their children are on the hook for. But even something as straightforward as ordering personal protective equipment like masks was botched. That started with the shocking revelation that Public Health Canada actually destroyed 8.9 million pieces of personal protective equipment, including masks, gloves and medical gowns, just months before the pandemic because the government agency didn't want to pay for storage. I mean, the problem was compounded by the fact that the government shipped hundreds of thousands of pieces of personal protective equipment to China in mid-February. That's three weeks after the first Canadian COVID case was confirmed on January 25th. And then to top it off, the government took six weeks to order new personal protective equipment after that first case was identified. With no vaccine plan in place, the government took the highly questionable step of making a deal with China that the Communist Party of China reneged on. And only after that deal fell through did it reach out to Pfizer or Moderna or JJ and for a vaccine. But as I said, I do appreciate that most Canadians don't seem to mind as long as they got a check, but you know what? That's actually an insult to ignore the 28,000 Canadians who lost their lives and their families and friends who grieved them. As Canada, This is Canada's chief health officer, Theresa Tom. She stated in quotes, What's etched in our collective memory is how we failed our most vulnerable people in our population, not just seniors, racialized population and women and people in congregate crowded housing. The government failed to protect the elderly, which they stated from the outset was the number one goal. And yet the majority of Canadians say the government did a good job handling the pandemic without a plan for the border, securing vaccines, protecting the elderly. My goodness, we really do get the government we deserve. But back to Afghanistan. Canada left families, women, children behind to suffer the wrath of the Taliban, despite the numerous promises that we made as a country. What's clear is that the Canadian government and military were caught off guard. Dave Fraser, he's a former troop commander in Afghanistan, described the situation in Kabul as absolutely chaotic. As the National Post reports, uh, Chris Eklund, he's the founder of the Canadian Heroes Foundation, Well, they tried to help 1,500 former support staff escape to Canada, but only about 100 managed to make it. Eklund stated in quotes, the government's simply not interested in this. They never have been. Now, I can go on describing the tragedy of people who supported Canadian forces in Afghanistan and are reneging on promises to help them. But my point is that the government was ill-prepared, unable to carry out its duty. I mean, I could list other examples, like the failure to provide clean, safe drinking water in numerous First Nations communities, which represents decades of failed promises. I could point to the latest Commonwealth Fund rankings of healthcare systems in 11 rich, developed countries where Canada ranked 10th out of 11 which is consistent with numerous other rankings of things like access to MRIs or the wait times for necessary medical procedures, or the fact that before the pandemic, as many as 50 to 60,000 Canadians a year had to leave the country for treatment. I mean, read any Auditor General's report, and you'll get several more significant examples, which begs the question. Do you really want even more government intervention and control of the economy? Joe Biden puts it as reshaping the government's role in the economy. Prime Minister Trudeau says the government will, in quotes, reimagine capitalism. Well, there's no evidence that remotely suggests that they could do that efficiently or effectively. I mean, at some point, the government's track record has to factor into this. And if it does, the thought the government will be in charge of the economy should scare the heck out of you. And Prime Minister's most telling remark of the campaign he doesn't even consider. Or think about monetary policy. I mean, that's interest rates, money supply, currency values. That's why you got, uh, you know, real problems with affordable housing. I mean, the thought that government could do for the overall economy what they've done in Afghanistan, I mean, their preparation and management of the COVID pandemic, their oversight of healthcare care, uh, that despite the continual expenditures of tens of billion dollars more, fails in the words of the Canadian Institute of Health, To improve our time, a timely access to care. Come on, that should frighten us because it sure does me. As I said, at some point, the government's track record better figure into our thinking. And please be clear, I'm not talking about any particular government. I'm talking about every party. I'm talking about government problems that have gone by for decades. As H.L. Mencken said, "Be careful what you wish for, because you just might get it good and hard." Of course, we're in the middle of a election campaign. Very tough to keep on top of everything that's happening right now. I'm going to focus, though, as you would expect on this show, more on the economic side of things. And to do that, I've got Mike Levy uh, in. Mike, I wanted to chat with you about one of the policies that we hear. We hear a little bit of cheerleading for, and it's sort of an example of why we should think a little bit deeper. So I'm talking specifically about uh, the Liberal platform has promised to put a new tax on financial institutions. That's banks, of course, other financials and, and insurance companies. But I don't think a
2: lot of people have thought through the implications, at least for their own pocketbook. Well, Mike, it's true. They have had, they've put out there as a policy a platform to uh, raise the uh, current federal income tax rate uh, from 15 to 18%. <clears throat> the Liberal Party estimates generate about two and a half billion dollars over the next four years. A temporary tax. I love that word temporary, Mike. I don't <laughs> know of a tax ever, ever, ever that was temporary. Uh, uh, you know, they, they may give you a little tax holiday for a month or something, but there is no such thing as temporary taxes. But the problem is, is the retail customers of the banks, you and I and everybody listening to this show, we're all retail customers of the banks. And the banks are not going to just let this go and, and let this uh, uh, raise in taxes impact their profits. They're just going to go ahead and find those profits in other places. And one of the main places they're going to find them is simply raise their fees and raise their interest rates in some cases when they can and pass it on to consumers. They're not going to take this passively. Well, and the other side I want to just
1: bring up is, of course, share, if they didn't do that, then it's the shareholders who pay. But here's the key. Who are the shareholders? Well, virtually every working Canadian, because we own the big banks, all of them and the other and other financial institutions through our pension plan, namely the Canada pension plan, let alone if you have a workplace pension plan. You're one of the lucky people who has one of those. Well, of course, it's one of the main components when you look at Canadian pensions is to hold, (laughs) excuse me, some of the big five banks or maybe the uh, prominent insurance companies. Well, that just lowers their profit. That means the stocks are less attractive. It means the value of the pension goes down. So you've got the double whammy. The one side you're saying, hey, if they do try and make up that revenue somewhere else, well, it's going to be higher fees. The other side is if they don't, well, shareholders get it between the eyes.
2: And and Mike, this isn't just our take on it. You and me talking Mm -hmm. or reading some of the media here, and it is a common sense thing. But a a report from Bloomberg Intelligence uh, looking at a European Central Bank study. this is a European Central Bank study last year found that banks would either work that into borrowing rates, that's raise in taxes or, uh, offered to customers, or raise fees. So it's not just me expounding it, but this is historically what happens. And this is a pretty significant um, uh, uh, study that was done. But the immediate impact, of course we're going to see it in earnings, of course we're going to see it in dividends because the banks are not going to have the same uh, uh, reserves that they have, so they cannot pay out the same kind of dividends. But um, the immediate impact in a bump in mortgage rates, for instance, to recoup the lost profits uh, to taxes would negatively affect affordability. And so if they've got to raise their rates either on consumer loans or bump up their uh, mortgage rates, that makes things less affordable for the people that the that, that the liberal platform is ostensibly trying to help. And um, retail banking would bear the brunt of the inke- increase in fees. Make no doubt about that, because corporations have the ability to go shopping and to do things on a much larger scale than, let's say, you or I. So it's not going to impact the corporations that deal with the banks. It's going to impact the everyday person who deals with the
1: banks. Well, that's the part we want at least to bring people's attention. Here's the bottom line though. If it if it brings in what 1.5 to 2.5 billion dollars, the money comes from somewhere. Does it come from shareholders? And again, reminding people, besides individuals owning shares in in financial institutions, your pension plan does, or do they make up that money through service fees? I think that's the key. But I think, Mike, it's an important lesson in looking at any one of these policies. All the parties are putting out policies that have direct economic impact, and you just don't leave it at that. And, and the one thing I would remind people about any tax policy is when you're removing money from the economy... That is not good for economic growth. So, uh, again, I appreciate that there will be some people who love the idea of uh, greater taxes on the banks. I just want to make sure everyone understands some of the implications.
2: Well, as you said, and one final point, Mike, uh, it takes money away from consumers, ultimately. And that's a harmful economic policy. It means less discretionary spending for retail and restaurants and that kind of spending that people do. And I think that's maybe the main takeaway from this.
1: Well, as I say, plus the shareholder side. Mike, thanks for taking the time. We'll do a lot more of this as we go in the next couple of weeks. Thanks, Mike. With the first week week of school and universities upon us, I think it's appropriate for my quote of the week to discuss education. And my hope is that we start discussing a lot more than the latest political wrangling over education and instead talk about curriculum, what's being taught in the classroom. And that brings me to my quote of the week by celebrated economist Thomas Sowell. In quotes, I think we're raising whole generations who regard facts as more or less optional. We have kids in elementary school are being urged to take stands on political issues, to write their congressmen, other politicians, about things like nuclear energy. They're not a decade old, and they're being thrown these kinds of questions that can absorb the lifetime of very brilliant and learned men and women. And they're being taught that it's important to have views, but they're not being taught that it's important to know what you're talking about. It's important to hear the opposite viewpoint and more important, to learn how to distinguish why viewpoint A and viewpoint B are different, and which one has the most evidence or logic behind it. They disregard that. They hear something, they hear some rhetoric, and they run with it. End of quote. I've been looking forward to this conversation. I've got Martin Straith, who's with me. He's the editor, author, everything. He's got a whole team with him, by the way, but I'm giving him full credit for the trend letter and the trend disruptions and the trend technical trader, all of that kind of stuff. Martin, thanks for finding time for us. Oh, my pleasure, Mike. Good to be here. Let, let's talk about, I mean, let's get right to it in the stock market these days. I was fascinated to see Friday's unemployment number come in or job creation number out of the States And it was abysmal. It was way below the worst estimates or predictions. And yet the market didn't care. So let's start with
3: what does the market care about? Well, that's so true, Mike. I mean, we're in uh, supposedly the the weakest months of the year for the stock market. And uh, August was uh, the seventh month in a row of of gains. So uh, clearly uh, employment isn't a big concern. Uh, the, really, the, the major contributor to the rise in the markets is simply the, the pumping of liquidity by the central banks. I mean, the correlation between the rise of the Fed balance sheet and the S&P 500 is striking, especially when you think of uh, since the pandemic, um, the markets are addicted to central banks buying up bonds and mortgage-backed securities and keeping interest rates artificially low. And it's not just North America, Mike. Uh, this is a global scenario. Um, global stocks are in lockstep with the global liquidity from central banks. Um, I've posted uh, on our website, I've posted some of my notes here and there's a bunch of charts in there that your, your listeners might wanna check out because uh, you know we do a lot of charts. We're technical and uh, the charts really tell the story. But one of those charts, Mike, shows that the combination of the Fed the ECB and the Bank of Japan's balance sheet is now over $24 trillion, and that's up $10 trillion since the pandemic.
1: Well, that's a, an example, by the way, of, uh, you know, good, that should have been my shocking stat, although I have a good one every week. But think about that. I mean, this is what sort of... I shook my head when the prime minister said he didn't think about monetary policy. This is the driving force. As you say, you look throughout the world. Bank of Canada has been part of it. Federal Reserve, of course, a leader. As you say, Bank of Japan, European Central Bank, they create this money. And as you have just noted here, and you can find it on the trendletter.com, $24 trillion being created. And a lot of it has ended up, for example, in different stock markets around the world, and, uh, and, of course, the bond markets, too. But, I mean, the system is flush with cash, is how I probably should have put that. And do you see the market really uh, – but is it addicted in this way? Can they
3: ever back off? Can they ever – take, as they call it, tapering their involvement? Well, it's crazy it's, because, you know, you know where, what we're at now, we've got this whole, um, this whole scenario where bad is now considered good, and good is considered bad. You know, when we get good economic news, the markets cringe because now they're afraid that the Fed's going to have to let the rates rise and, you know, to control inflation. And then when we get bad economic news, like you say, we just saw the, the unemployment and the markets consider that good because that means that the uh, Fed has to keep uh, keep stimulus running. Um, you know, it's 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 crazy because it, how can they possibly um, let rates rise? You know governments are so in debt right now um you know trudeau just announced uh what 78 billion more on top of the what 350 billion From you know it's just they don't seem to care at all but the word debt doesn't even come up in the election um so i think that central banks now are being so pressured to keep these rates low uh, i don't know how they're ever going to let them up and and once the market decides you know what this is crazy Um, I'm not buying government bonds anymore. And if nobody else is buying them, at some point, we're going to get a default. And then that's going to be contagion. And then we're going to see, you know, whether it's Portugal or Spain or whoever, it's going to then the dominoes will start to fall. And that's when I think we're going to see some real, real issues happening.
1: You know, it's interesting, this past week, Bill Gross You know who is considered one of the big bond players in the world and has been for a number of years. He came out and said, "You know what? I think government bonds are garbage," and uh, that tells you why the central banks have to be the buyer of government bonds. When you've got major players like that talking that way, I mean, it's it's something. I mean, I personally am, you know, been advising people. You'd get this uh, since the Outlook Conference in February of 2020. I said, "Hey, you get one more kick at the can at this," uh, you know, that bond. Prices will rise as yields fall, but after that, you're just taking on too much risk. And how how does what what do you guys think at the trend letter about ownership
3: of government bonds? Oh, Mike, we've been we've been warning them to uh, you know on any rise in in bond prices is to unload them. You know, Mm -hmm. government bonds are you know as he said you know they're they're garbage. You know, every week the trend letter publishes every week, and we always publish a, a chart. Uh, of real return on 11 different countries. And that chart, of of the 11 countries on the chart, only one, Mexico, has a positive return. So real return is simply the nominal yield minus inflation. So you've got inflation coming up and you've got, you know, the the bonds are paying nothing. You know, in Canada, real return is minus 1.9%. The U.S. is minus 4.09%. And Germany is the big loser. You buy a German bond, a 10 year bond, you're losing four point two, three percent every year. Like, you know, if you had a traditional 60 40 uh, stock bond portfolio, the bond portion is killing your return instead of being a safe haven, a safe investment. It's the opposite of safe. You know, the bonds are going to drain your retirement fund. Um, no, I would I would not be buying bonds. Uh, And let's come back to that. Just a a good definition there. And then what we're talking about is you
1: get, let's say, 4% in a savings account or a bond, but inflation's running at 5%. You're losing buying power the longer you hold those. And as you say, uh, Martin, I mean, this has been a dreadful time. Uh, Interesting, as you say, in Germany, in the U.S., look at the U.S. inflation rates been over 5%. In Canada, 3.7, the last number we got. Well, if you hold a bond that pays you 1.5%, you're losing every year. I just want to make sure people really get that concept of the negative real interest rates. Well, that's why investors aren't piling into these bonds, you know, and it's why the central
3: banks seem to be caught here. Oh, they are. They are. I mean, they're the only people buying their own bonds. It's uh, you know, it's, it's a crazy scenario, but and it's not gonna it's not gonna last forever. I mean, they you know they just keep spending and borrowing, spending and borrowing. So you know the next one's going to be that they you know they're just going to you know i mean right now they they have no intention of paying these debts down um so it's just print money and eventually we're going to have where investors are going to go i don't want anything to do with bonds and so then where do they go and that's the that's the big one for us is that ultimately we see that the stocks are going to be one of the only places you want to be stocks uh gold eventually um Hard assets, you know, things that are real um, and bonds aren't real. They're, they're, uh, they're, they're, you're buying government debt and government debt is growing so fast. You don't want to be the one holding that.
1: Let me come to uh, two things you said there that I think are important for uh, I want everyone to understand is that, you know, in the environment we're in, it's interesting. Stocks have been a good, you know, certain stocks, especially, but been a good hedge against inflation. But you also mentioned gold. So give us your quick take on
3: gold. Well gold is uh you know gold's been an interesting thing. It's I mean gold's been in a downtrend channel for a year now since last August. And it's just right now, I mean today it's up or yesterday it was up about $20 at least. So it's just now breaking out of that or that downtrend channel. So what we're looking for is uh, that gold will will run. I mean gold will have another bull market. Um, it's still, you know, we've got Bitcoin and the cryptocurrencies, so that's been stealing some of the thunder away from gold, but typically in a gold market for precious metals, it's silver that outpaces gold and that has not been happening lately. So we keep a real on the gold silver ratio. And when the gold silver ratio is going up, then that's not the best news for a gold bull market. So we're looking at, uh, right now, I mean, we just look at the numbers, Mike. You know, we got near-term resistance at 1848. So that's about another $15 from where we are. We were close a week, 1925, then 1950. If you can get to 1950, then gold could have a run at the altered day high of 2081. But on the other side of it, the support is 1760, 1695, 1670. And if we get a, if we get a drop below 1670, that's going to be quite bearish for gold near-term. So we do see gold eventually going to have a real run, but we don't actually see that happening right now. One of the things that I think people have been
1: mistaken about, or I want to be careful because uh, some people who really like gold are passionate about it, and I always hear from them, but uh, my own trigger for that is, and I posted something this week uh, to saying that it's really the lack of confidence is what I'm looking for. Yes, you can trade, you know, and we'll have Victor Adair on coming up. You know, that's a trader. I'm talking for investors. I think you have to have some hedge against all of this creation of money, but it's not that in and of itself. It's that when we start losing confidence, you know, like we sort of it's like one day, I think literally, as we've seen these kind of movements in a lot of markets, how abrupt they become, how strong when sentiment shifts quickly. And uh, I sort of see that, and uh, I love you giving us the the numbers there because that's when it's sort of the ceiling gets lifted off. I, but I think it's important to have a hedge of gold given how much money, as you just said, $24 trillion getting created, uh, that you got to have some sort of hedge. And it's not a timing thing, and it's not a uh, you know, I, I'm not looking to trade it. I'm looking to have some protection against the devaluation of the purchasing power of the currency when it gets more widely
3: recognized. Oh, absolutely, Mike. When, you know, when we say that uh, we don't see maybe gold going up right now, that doesn't mean you, you don't want to own some. You know, it, it's it's insurance, right? It's, you're looking at yeah. the eventual collapse of the bond market. You know, you're looking at the continuing Pumping of you know paper money out of there. At some point, um, you need something that's hard. And you, like I said, you know we're, we're talking about things that are are real. So you know we think that ultimately stocks are going to do very well because there's there's not much else to go to. So you can watch gold. You can you know art will probably do well. Things that are real. And I agree with you. I think that you want to own some gold. I'm um, just all I'm saying is I think you're going to get a better price. So for those who want to, you know, add to it, maybe today isn't the best time. So if you are trading gold, yeah, for sure you can, you know, buy some here, sell it there, keep buying and selling. But as you say, Mike, people that invest in gold, um, it's almost a religion for many of them. And, you know, you know, we we bought gold in two thousand and two when it was like two hundred and eighty dollars or something, and it went up to, you know, eighteen hundred or nineteen twenty, I think. And, and we sold it. And when we did that, um, you wouldn't believe the, the amount of emails we got from our, our subscribers. They were, they were livid. And then it went all the way down to 1040. And I know that many of those people just held it all the way down. So it is, you know, it's, it's something to have for insurance, but it, I, all I'm saying is I, I wouldn't be backing up the truck right now. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, And as I say, there's a lot of emotion attached, because uh, for some people, it's an anti-government thing, you know, that kind of stuff. And so other factors get involved. And I think actually our job is to sit there and say, if the government financial situation continues to erode, and I personally think it will, I don't want to put words in your mouth or anyone else's, I think we're going to see it as soon as next year. but. It's just where will money go seeking protection? So I think uh, clearly cryptocurrencies have had a nice run here, as you said earlier, Martin, that that's where some of the money's going. But clearly other asset-based inflation is part of that, and gold is part of that universe, and silver, and I'm glad you brought up silver. So all of that stuff's on the table. Let me just change gears just for a second, because one of the services that you run that I I really enjoy at the Trend Letter, you talk about trend (laughs) disrupt. And you look, historically, this has done very well for your subscribers. You look for changes in business. I don't want to, again, put words in your mouth, but big companies that are changing the way we do business. So you know I wasn't letting you
3: get out of here without talking about a couple of those. Yeah, well, absolutely, Mike. Um, You know, we have, as you say, we have one service called Trend Disruptors, which is, is totally into that, AI, 5G all of that, you know, virtual reality. Um, So there's some, there's some really exciting things happening and, you know, the whole internet of things. And, and so, yeah, I mean, that's, that is fun stuff to play with. Now it's also very speculative. So people need to, you know, we really try and hammer into people like when you're buying these things, this is not where you put your, you know, you don't mortgage a house and buy these things, but the way, you know, these things work, I mean, you only really need one of these to really hit a home run and, And we've had some really nice hits uh, in the last. You know, we've only been doing this for about five years, but uh, we've had some great gains. I've got a great one here for you today, Mike. If you want to hear about this, this is a this is a sector. It's a very new sector, and it's called low code application platforms. So it's LCAP. Now, there's an article on our. If you go to our website under the blogs, under the trend disruptor blogs, there's a whole article on this. But I'll just give you a quick. uh, overview of it. These are platforms that facilitate the development of business applications by people with little or no programming experience. So, Mike, if you think about it like today, if you were to, wanted to build a website, you used to have to know HTML and JavaScripts and all these other languages. Well, today you can go to, a, you know, all these different hosting sites, and just by using their templates, you can just drag and click and move different components and build your, you know, your application, your website for what your needs are. Excuse me. So, these low code automation replaces endless lines of code with intuitive images and easy to use commands. So, with just a few clicks, practically anybody in your company can create and run programs to help speed up workflow. So, Right now, with all of the pandemic and lockdowns and all these things happening, many companies are facing mounting challenges around getting applications developed and delivered. There was shortages of skilled developers, and that was driving up costs, and it's causing big delays in getting much needed applications up and running. But now, with the, with the use of these new platforms, you can, instead of having to have a large team of highly skilled, highly priced programmers, Companies can now have their regular staff create programs for improved product development, sales, marketing, whatever the program you need, and they in-house people can do it. Um, you still need some technical people around, but you don't need this army of developers. You know, the Gartner Group, um, they do some fabulous research, and they forecast that by 2023, over 50% percent by of medium to large enterprises will have adopted an LCAP, one of their strategic platforms. So in, 19, or in 2018, this sector was valued around $7.225, I think, billion billion. Last year, it was 13.2. By 2025, Gartner projects it will be 14.8 billion. Mike, that's growth of 245% in just four years. Now, We have a stock that we uh that we just recommended to our subscribers last week. Uh the company is called Appian Corp and it trades on the Nasdaq APPN. Um right now it's trading around $110. Uh, this is a speculative trade, so don't you know make sure you have a strategy to get out if it changes too much for you. And we see the risk here is medium. Now Appium is a recognized global leader across multiple enterprise technologies, uh, including this low-code application development, digital process automation, intelligent business process management, and dynamic case management. Uh, Forrester Consulting did a case study on Appian, and this is what it found for its clients. Clients were able to build apps, applications 10 times faster than traditional development. Their maintenance costs were reduced by 50% and they gain superior functionality as compared to the traditional development. Now Appian had a big run up uh, last November uh, on great revenue growth. Um, so we were waiting for a good entry point, but after being extremely overbought, over the last few months, the stock is now down about 50% and it's right in our buy target range. So so there's a company that people might want to take a look at.
1: So uh, once, once again, let me just, uh... That's Appian Corp, uh, symbol is A-P-P-N, A-P-P-N. But I love it, Martin, when you give the parameters, like this is speculative. I'm serious. I think this is absolutely key. When people listen about stocks or hear about any investment, they first go, okay, how does this fit for my portfolio? What's the risk profile here? What am I doing to make it appropriate? So I, I love that you do that. And you do it in the trend letter, so I think that's just. I'm just telling you. I think that's uh, incredibly important. Uh, Look, we got time for one more, and there's an area that you've been looking at that I wanted to, and it just happened to be a point of conversation I had during the week. And it's it's funny for my generation when you start talking about psychedelic therapies, it's hard to get past Timothy Leary and the Beatles in in India. But this is serious stuff, and uh, with serious progress being made, uh, we're talking about you know, helping things like PTSD or anxiety or pain or what have you. Tell us a little bit about the psychedelic therapies.
3: Well, it is, Mike. It's a, it's a very new sector. Um, our, our technical trader team has been following this for the last year. Um, they're right on top of it. And uh, it's a very small sector. I mean, heart, very few people are aware of it. I mean, companies in this sector have only been listed publicly in just the last year. So, Bruno and our technical team, uh, they project that this sector is going to be huge in the future, similar to cannabis, but times 10. Because while the cannabis is a mild medicine for generally mild problems, the psychedelics are serious medicine for serious problems, as you just mentioned, you know, post-traumatic stress syndrome and anxiety and all of these things. So it, it, the problems that it's addressing are including ones that the insurers are spending billions on. So the profit motive here is massive. Uh, our, our technical trader team, um, they were gonna be featuring many of these companies and upcoming blogs for subscribers. And these subscribers are gonna have a tremendous opportunity to be the, in the early investors in this sector. Um, we really believe there's gonna be some serious winners in the sector going forward. And I've got a pick for, again, this is a, from our technical trader group. Um, the, the company they like right now is called Atai health life sciences it also trades on the nasdaq and its symbol is atai and the recent price is about $17 and we have a buy up to $19 recommendation again mike speculative risk is medium now atai just completed a recent ipo and it's backed by a famous investor peter thiel who's you know people I'm sure most people would know that he was a co-founder of PayPal, founder of Palleter, founders group. I mean, he was the first outside investor in Facebook, and he's a huge proponent of the psychedelic therapies. Now, also ATI, one of the things the team likes about ATI is it doubles as a bit of an exchange-traded fund in that it has investments in the other companies in the space, most notably the other big player, which is Compass Theraways. Pathways, sorry. Compass Pathways.
1: Well, as I say, uh, it's a fascinating area. And that's why I I, I love your uh, trend, uh, the trend letter, trend, trend disruptors. But I also want to finish with this, Martin, and say uh, a big thank you. As you know, I'm, I'm very heavily involved, as many of our audience have helped out with Special Olympics, and so have you at the trend letter. And I think I just want to say, first of all, thank you. And I want to let people know that we talked to Martin's staff and uh, – they have a special on for money talks right now. So go to the trendletter.com. but we're talking about significant uh, discounts to their services of which they'll also give a hundred dollars for every subscription to special Olympics. So obviously I'm, I'm excited about that, but you know, timers digest, you know, talked about the trend letter and in bonds and gold and so many different areas over the last years and stock, of course, and I just talked about the trend disruptor, but every one of those has a special price for Money Talks listeners. And I want you to, you know, give you an example of the trend letter itself. You know, it's regularly six hundred bucks. You can get it for three ninety nine, basically, as a Money Talk special. But as I say, I'm much appreciative of uh, Martin and his team putting hundred dollars for every subscription over to Special Olympics. So we appreciate that. But there's uh, combinations too, because there's the trend letter, there's uh, the technical trader, there's trend disruptors, you know, everyone giving recommendations in different areas, uh, overall market view of the trend letter, et cetera. You've heard me talk about gold bonds and stocks today. So at any rate, I I just want to say a big thank you uh, to you, Martin, and invite people to go to the trendletter.com, trendletter.com.
3: Well, you know, kudos to you, Michael, and and for Grant and Christine and your your group. Um, Great work. And And Amanda and her team at Special Olympics, um, what a dynamite team. Just I want to note, you know, it's up at Westwood Plateau, and that that happens to be my home course. And, uh, you know, Penny and her team there, they put on great events. I've been to a number of events there. Um, For people that have not golfed there, and especially ones that don't golf a lot, I know that a lot of charity events, people don't golf a lot maybe. So here's a quick hint. It's a mountain course with spectacular views. But being a mountain course, there's lots of creeks and trees and gullies. So bring lots of golf balls. There's my my Homer uh, tip for the day. Okay. we're talking about the Special Olympics
1: tournament, September 29th at uh, Westwood Plateau. And by the way, I've got all sorts of tricks, Martin, for people who lose their ball We're not making them count the score for that because it's a charity tournament. And we've been we have been trying to host this, by the way, since June of 2020, Uh, about five date changes because we're always in compliance, of course, with the health regulations and the guidelines. So we've had to shift it. But it's now September 29th. I think I'll kill myself if it isn't. We'll do it on air, though. So we'll get a little publicity that way. But I appreciate your support very much. Thank you. And thanks for taking the time today. That was terrific. All right. Take care, Mike. Uh, trendletter.com, trendletter.com. And speaking of the Special O tournament, we still are looking for auction items. If you can help out that way, uh, let us know at uh, info at mikesmoneytalks.ca. Also, a big thank you. uh, Another group that's just stepped up this past week is Saks Underwear. Best underwear ever. It's always been really a popular item, by the way, at uh, at the tournaments where we have giveaways. Thanks to the people at Saks, though, and uh, it's it, they've stepped up again, and we couldn't thank them enough. As I say, a super high quality product. And uh, as I say, we gave them a call, and they said, absolutely, we're there for you. So a thanks to Saks Underwear, too. And just a reminder, the Special O tournament is uh, September 29th, and we need auction items. Uh, you can go to mikesmoneytalks.ca. You can click on there or send, a, send us a note at info at Talks.ca. It would be much appreciated. Coming up, I've also got a talk. i got Ozzy Juric on deck. i got a shocking stat. And I've got Victor Adair live from the trading desk and a Goofy. I'm now, for this week's shocking stat, and this week's stat is 0.03 percent, as in that's how much the economy shrank in the second quarter. Annualized, that's a 1.1 percent contraction. Now, it's shocking because the consensus of a common economist was for annualized growth of 2.5 percent. I mean, that's a huge miss, and one that could spell trouble as we go forward because the preliminary numbers for July is an even bigger contraction. And my personal shock, well, actually. It's my disappointment, and not surprised, that during the campaign, specific policies to spur economic growth have rarely rated a mention, with two of the parties outlining policies that would severely damage economic growth if implemented. And just so you're clear, tax increases are always negative for the economy, whether they're levied on individuals or business income or investments, sales taxes, labor through payroll taxes, property, you name it, always negative for the economy. Sadly, with the exception of the Conservative Party, our political leaders don't even pay lip service to the need to attract and encourage capital investment, improve our competitiveness rankings, uh, along with the free fall in our rankings in terms of doing business. At least the Conservatives have mentioned that I want to see a lot more meat in the bowl, but all of which are necessary regardless of your political persuasion or your gender or your marital status, at least if you care about issues like poverty or your wages or government services, climate policies. Jobs, charitable donations, all of these are helped by a stronger economy, and certainly not one that's contracting. And by the way, dismal economic growth is not a recent problem. It's not a pandemic-related problem. You should know that our 10-year average for growth is a dismal 1.5%. A couple things I want to talk about this week with Ozzy Jurek. I'll just start, Ozzy, with the numbers that we got over the last little bit, and we'll get a couple more fleshing out of the numbers, but. Uh, when I look at, uh, you know, the August sales, one thing that struck me, though, and maybe the most noteworthy for me, was uh, the reduction again in listings. I mean, that's going to have an impact right through the market. It's going to maintain prices. It's going to probably look like you slow down activity because there's nothing to buy. People
4: aren't buying. Well, it's, it's very interesting that normally when you have lower sales like we right now have in the single family home sector by some 10 percent pure units sold, Normally that builds up than the inventory, but it doesn't this time. Both the active listings are way down and the new listings are way down. So either the owners think, you know what, Um, I don't trust this market, I can get more in the fall, or it's too hot. (laughs) Maybe some reasons this summer that they certainly didn't list. But there's a real shift from a huge increase in condo sales to a decline in single family home sales. So I think we reached a price level in the single family home market where we have some buyer resistance and they're shifting into condos. Maybe the most remarkable number is now our average single family home price at a million which is up a whopping, just a whopping 28% in one year.
1: And, and again, one of the things we always say is you don't, this used to be a unique market trend in Toronto, Vancouver, maybe another couple of centers. Now we're seeing it across the board. You know, you look at waterfront throughout uh, British Columbia, as an example, in other parts of the country, but you look across the country. So you've seen the same sort of phenomena of strength over the last year, Calgary, Edmonton, Red Deer, et cetera. Yeah. But uh, again, that I just wondering, as you say, in d- different markets have different price points, of course. But it looks like a little bit of buyer's exhaustion, but we'll have to wait and see if some of that at least got to do with reduced inventory.
4: No question about it. And so it'll be it's, it's very interesting. Normally, it's very clear to predict. Sales yeah. go down, listings go up, prices stop. Now we have both, everything at the same time. And that was... But it's like it's very Ontario that's up 30 percent in prices. I mean, it's like you say, it isn't just the main main cities and it's around the world. I can tell you some cities in Australia, or New Zealand or England. And so we have, I think, a lot of money in, in circulation and that money looks for a home. And it's finding right now still a lot of that in real estate.
1: OK, speaking of money in circulation, I know it was big news in case people didn't catch it this past week a uh, new report coming out uh, from an access to information a- uh, request. It's got to be like 20 years old, just showing that, I mean, some really nefarious things or questionable things happening at the upper end of the real estate market, linking the, the Canadian government's, you know, sort of uh, rich immigration, millionaire immigration scheme with real estate buying. And there's some, as I say, highly questionable
4: aspects. Yeah, the, the, there's two things in that. First of all, there was a whistleblower some 20 years ago, Whose uh, whistleblowing was disregarded, or it was actually studied, but it was held back and not released. And it took a reporter from, of all places, the South China Post in Hong Kong to ask for it, and it was just released last week, five years after he had requested it, and which prompted one of the professors uh, to say, "Look, uh, you know, if we had known this five years ago, we we would have maybe been able to motivate, move sooner on doing something about it." But when you think about it, what did they do? They buy maybe a $2 million house or two and a half million dollar house in Burnaby. And then they declare an income of $178 or as much as $16,000, which would be 16 times lower than the average Canadian at the time would have reported. So it was clearly an outright lie. And the question to me is CRE knew it. They, They were told about it, they ran an investigation on it, but they didn't stop it. Now who made them stop it? Yeah. Well, let me just,
1: first of all, give a pat in the back to Ian Young, who's the one who was persistent enough with the South China Morning Post. As you say, you know, five years in the making, a an answer to a freedom of information request. Are you kidding? You know, at Revenue Canada, there was a secret study. I mean, none of this stuff adds up and I think makes anybody comfortable. But the point you're making is what the study found is people buying multimillion dollar homes and yet reporting income that was, you know, insignificant, let's call it.
4: If that was a Canadian, he'd be in jail. See, the whole idea of, of a lot of those things that are going on, people saying, well, we're out there, they're flipping and they're making these profits. Well, that's fine. But if they don't declare it, it's illegal. They should be sued. And, and, you know, somebody should go after them. And that's the point I cannot understand. If we know that these people lied, why do we do this? Do we, do we want their money that bad?
1: Well, obviously, I think the answer is yes to that. <laughs> you know, I think the answer is yes. But let me let me just ask you. There's an awful lot of talk. We talked about it last week about foreign buying. I mean, at what end, this seems to me to impact the upper end of the market. And as I say, probably more questions about CRA and, and you know reported income than really about the real estate market. Do you think this reflects on the so-called that's been the driver of the overall market strength, especially in the last couple of years? I mean, this report goes back a long time, and I'm, I'm so glad that Ian Young pursued it and got it out to us. Uh, but what about current impact on the real estate market?
4: Well, first of all, we want high net worth immigration. You know, the government actually had a plan, a stated objective to attract millionaires. And, and high net worth people because they didn't just buy a house, they buy a car, they create maybe employment. That was the idea. That is no longer in place. These schemes have been eliminated, I think, at least three and a half years ago. But the point is that, that, as I said, they did, they knew that there was something wrong with the programmer, but they didn't follow it up. Today it's a different market. When you take a look last year when our prices went up a whopping 25% on average, and yet, uh, there was no inward, inward migration. There was no foreign money pouring into here. And it's the income increases in prices are Canada wide. It's not all by foreigners moving in here. Now, the government, though, has made it clear that they want 1.2 million people. They're projecting it. And we talked about it. That the first quarter was 80,000. And so these people will be coming, but they would not be considered to be that ultra rich only It is just regular immigrants buying a property.
1: And the other thing to remember, uh, I mean, this is three levels of government on the aspect we're talking about right this second. But it's three levels of government. And I have yet to see any kind of a plan to absorb. I mean, uh, new immigrants contribute to the economy, contribute to the country. I suspect by your accent at one point you were an immigrant. Just kidding. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you need a coordinated housing plan. It's a supply problem, despite what they they talk about. So where's our plan to help uh, house 1.3 million people over a three-year period?
4: Yeah, I put down the platforms uh, of all of the parties on my Ausbus, which is going to go out this week. And the idea is that, that everybody is, is throwing numbers out there, but not not very meaningful. Now they're going to stop the, the large parties, two years worth of immigration altogether. Yeah. Uh, now, uh, uh, and residential buying is, is maybe allowed in, in some minor portion. But the point is that millionaires like Canada, because we have a good banking system, we have uh, the rule of law. And when there was in a study done, the millionaires in the world uh, primarily went to Australia, the United States and Canada. And they left, uh, France and Russia and, and China in, in droves. Uh, so there are nothing wrong with me having a millionaire immigrant. I don't think there's anything wrong with it. Um, but what is wrong is if they declare the wrong income that we don't pursue them. This is, it's, it's mind boggling. That's, that's the part I don't get. But it's also clear that according to the Conference Board of Canada, that immigration will account for 100% of Canada's population growth by 2034. So we need the immigrants. You know, we are an Asian society. We need the people coming. But we should all learn better. And goodness, creatures, we need to create more housing.
1: Good stuff as always. And again, I'll just acknowledge Ian Young for the persistence getting the report to us from the South China Morning Post. Ozzy Jurek, go to ozbuzz.ca. He's reviewing the different platforms vis-a-vis real estate. ozbuzz.ca. Ozzy, chat next week.
4: Thank you very much, Mike. And seeing that you mentioned that I was an immigrant, I've also been called the only Canadian that doesn't speak either one of the official languages.
1: Well, we're glad you speak something here with us. (laughs) I'll take a break, I'll come back. I'm going live to the trading desk and I got a goofy award, stay with us. In case you missed it, there was some big news out of the U.S. yesterday, and I'm going to go live to the trading desk now. Victor Dare is waiting there. Vic, I mean, how couldn't I knew that there was a job number coming out at the end of the week? It was coming out on Friday. But what I didn't anticipate was how far off uh, the sort of analytical expectations of jobs were. Maybe you could elaborate a little bit for that, and I'll ask you some questions around it.
0: Sure. I mean, everybody knew the unemployment number was coming out on Friday. It, it was potentially a big number, Uh, it seemed like you know the markets were quiet enough as it was being late summer, but like everybody's sitting on their hands waiting for the number. It came out, it was way below expectations. The expectations had been around three quarters of a million new jobs. We came out with 325,000, that which was way below even the most pessimistic forecast prior to the number. That's the weakest monthly report since January. And okay, so what, what's the big deal about that? Um, unemployment, uh, probably I should say it the other way around, employment so far this year, or uh, let's say since the virus lows that last uh, April, has increased by 17 million, but we're still five million short of what the number of people that were working before the virus uh, uh, panic happened last year.
1: Well, let me ask you a few things here. Uh, Again, we get a piece of news like that. But what I want to have people understand is how the market interprets that. You know, they take that and run. So I'll ask you a few different categories. Let me start with what did the stocks think of that?
0: You know, it was almost a non-event of the stock market. Uh, the stock market broadly, let's say the S&P, the Dow Jones, the NASDAQ has been chugging higher. It was A couple of the markets were making new highs this week. They're not much changed on the number. You know, sort of like we call it the whisper number was that it was going to be a, a miss. It was going to be lower. Uh, but anyway, stocks, not much changed.
1: Well, let me then ask about this is I probably should have started with this because, I mean, everybody's watching the Federal Reserve. Everybody's wondering, when are they going to stop manipulating interest rates to these kind of record low territory? I would think that when you get a negative kind of economic growth number, that probably extends the time frame that the Federal Reserve will keep rates low. And I mean, the so-called taper when they slow that down
0: exactly i mean i think that's the reason that stocks are able to maintain you know being at all time highs here the chances of the fed starting to taper uh are are postponed let's put it that way however interesting nuance here the bond market yields are a little higher you would think, what what you think yields would fall on this i think maybe with the bond market they're looking at another aspect of the number instead of just the headline number uh wage growth was definitely stronger than the market had been expecting the bond market may be a little bit nervous about incipient uh, inflation I've thought all along when people are talking about inflation around uh call it bottlenecks and supply shortages and that sort of thing I thought we'll we'll know if we've got inflation if we see wages starting to tick mm-hmm. higher so mm-hmm. maybe that's why yields are a little higher on bonds here today
1: Let me backtrack to something you said a moment ago, and that is, you know, we're at the end of the, you know, obviously we've got the Labor Day weekend. Uh, You know, things get quiet coming into this weekend. So am I interpreting or looking to find too much here that I have to maybe wait until see what happens in September? All the traders come back to their desks, et cetera.
0: The most important number of the week is always the Friday close, in my view. I mean, that's what people are willing to live with while the markets are closed yeah. for a couple of days. And I think a Friday close is even more important ahead of a three-day weekend, okay, for the same kind of reason. So uh, but the other side of your question is I've been thinking for some time that we've been complacent here in late summer. I mean, once this unemployment number was out of the way, volatility measures really dropped, okay? Like people had bid up volatility ahead of the number in case it was a shocker and immediately volatility gets offered. But my thought is, when we come into September, I think there's going to be a lot of stress in the market. I mean, the, the Biden honeymoon is clearly over. There is mm-hmm. going to be serious wrangling in Washington over getting any of these stimulus bills passed. And I think a lot of the enthusiasm for the stock market has been on the back of, hey, we're going to have stimulus and stimulus and stimulus. And the money has got to go somewhere. It's going to come into the stock market. So, you know, Bob's your uncle, you can stay along the stock market. I'm not so sure that stimulus is just going to be rolling out. I think it's going to be a struggle in Washington.
1: Well, and again, actually, I'm glad you brought that up, because I would say one of the other big pieces of news is now that $3.5 trillion, whatever they want to call that package, they're calling it infrastructure, but that, that definition now is so broad, as to be meaningless. It's just more government money. That looks like, as you say, a real slowdown, so that's also going to be factored
0: in here. Yeah, that's the, the human infrastructure, I think, is the, the term on that one. Hey, here's a wild card. In two weeks from now, there's a recall uh, vote in California. Newsom is the Democratic governor. If he was to lose that, we're going to have a Republican governor in California in two weeks. There's a couple of Democratic senators in Washington. Diane Felstein is one of them, who is near 90 years old and is apparently struggling. I mean, if we had one senator change from being Democratic to being Republican might change a lot of the math about what happens in the United States. I'm making this point because the political wrangling in Washington is going to be very important to the market. and I think it's only going to ramp up as we go into the fall.
1: I think that's just, just such a great point, because, I mean, anything I'm reading in the poll results, we're seeing President Biden's approval rating really taking a hit because of the debacle in Afghanistan. And, uh, you know, Americans are not letting that one go. And I mean, it's just dominating the news much more so than than the Delta variant, that kind of stuff. And obviously, the administration's spinning it hard, but it doesn't look like it's sticking. And and that boy, if they have any kind of a, a, an election in that, you know, uh In the shorter term, because somebody passes away or what have you, is unable to fulfill their role, uh, I think that could have a really dynamite impact, as you say, because, of course, 50-50 in the Senate and, you know, the tie gets broken by the vice president. But, man, if that even shifts one vote, that's a big deal.
0: Staying with politics, I mean, Biden and the Democratic Party have got to be looking forward. uh, Just more than a year, we're going to have the the by-elections, okay, the November 22 elections. It seems to be a given they're going to lose control of the House. Uh, they may or may not lose control of the Senate. What that means is if Biden wants to make a mark, he's got to get it done quick and it seems like there's pressure on his side to we got to get rolling on the stimulus packages and and everything else so that I'll go down in history as the guy that did this and that and the other thing. And the Republicans may also, obviously are also looking ahead, and they may think, you know, if we could just drag this out for a while, we're going to bury those guys come next November. Well, (laughs) as I say, hey, the good news is we're going to have lots to talk about
1: starting next week, Vic. So uh, (laughs) let's do it. And I'll remind people, by the way, to go to victoradare.ca. VictorAdair.ca. And you can see these you know, absolutely fabulous charts. I mean, Vic, you've got something on gold there. Really interesting. It's up about 150 bucks from the panic lows of a month ago. So lots is changing. But as you say, September is where we're going to be focused. I think so. Thanks, Mike. VictorAdair.ca. Time for this week's Goofy Award. You know, this weekend marks 1,000 days in captivity in China for former Canadian diplomat Michael Kovrig, businessman Michael Spavar held in solitary confinement in what's been described as abominable conditions. That's in retaliation for the detention of Huawei executive ming Wanzhou, Zhou, who, by the way, lives in her Vancouver mansion in the most expensive neighborhood in the city and is allowed to roam the streets of Vancouver. Mr. Spavar has just been sentenced to 11 years for espionage on trumped-up accusations of taking pictures of Chinese military equipment, while Michael Kovrig still hasn't been sentenced. Charles Burton is a senior fellow at McDonnell Laurier Institute, but he's also held diplomatic postings in China. And he states on MSN.com that in quotes, I believe that the government's claims that they made Kovrig and Spavar the top foreign policy priority are difficult to verify simply because we haven't made any kind of retaliation to provide the Chinese government with incentive to release them. I think he's talking about things like recalling our ambassador, expelling China's ambassador, but we've done nothing. But this is part of a broader issue, our approach to China. As Mr. Burton says, so far in quotes, we simply passively responded to what the Chinese government has been doing. Well, this is despite warnings from the Canadian military in whose director David Vignon warned against China's, in quotes, strategy for geopolitical advantage on all fronts, economic, technological, political, military, that uses, in quotes, all elements of state power to carry out activities that are a direct threat to Canada's national security and sovereignty. A direct threat. And somehow China's not a major election issue? What's that called? Oh, yeah, it's called pathetic. Dealing with China is the number one geopolitical issue in the world and should be front and center in the federal campaign. But you know what? Our thinking's too small, too pedestrian to consider geopolitical questions, despite the clear warnings by groups like the Clairvoyant Cyber Corp, who consults for CSIS and the RCMP, and they did a report for Public Health Canada that warned that China uses a range of tools in Canada, from criminal gangs to cyber hackers to high-tech companies like Huawei, which could be costing the Canadian economy $100 billion a year. Oh yeah, I forgot, most of our leaders don't think about the economy. Chinese cyber attacks have been going on for a long time. I mean maybe you remember the extensive Chinese military cyber attack on Nortel in 2004 and they continue every day. And yet, it's not an election issue. Canada's is the only member of the Five Eyes intelligence network to not ban Huawei from building our 5G network despite explicit warnings from the military, explicit warnings from CSIS that one of the main pillars of the Communist Party's ongoing assault on the West is in cyberspace. It's incredible. One more thing. As we note, the thousand days in captivity for Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavar, and I hope you do, I hope you give them a thought, thousand days in solitary confinement. Well, I have a poll question for you. Which party do you think Xi Jinping and the Communist Party of China hopes wins the federal election? Now, we've listed the parties alphabetically. So, Who do you think the Communist Party of China wants to win? I'm not asking you who you want to win. Put your foreign affairs analyst hat on and let us know. Is it the Conservatives, Green Party, Liberals, NDP? All you have to do is go to Mike's Money Talks or Money Talks Tweet or Michael Campbell's Money Talks on Facebook. I invite you to do it. I'd love to see what your answer is. And I think, as I say, while our leaders may not be talking about this, we should be. That's all the time we have this week. I hope you continue to join me, by the way, on Money Talks tweets or Michael Campbell's Money Talks on Facebook and go to our site, Money Talks, Mike's Money Talks dot In the meantime, I hope you have a terrific week.
0: Subscribe to the Money Talks with Michael Campbell podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts or anywhere you get your on demand audio for the complete show, daily podcasts, and more.